You've never done that before. My name is Scott. I am the lead pastor here, and um, I have been asked to do one of those um, greet someone next to you. I'll give you a little little backstage pass. I was told maybe the crackers at the front aren't gluten-free, so Jen Consumer is going to come save the day, take those crackers away and exchange them while the rest of you greet someone next to you. So <laughs> greet someone, get to know who they are, ask them how they ended up here today. Ready? Go. <clears throat> I think that that's what she, that's what she just took. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Perfect. Way to go, Donna. <clears throat> Hi, ma'am. Are you new here? Wow, nice to meet you. All right. Bring it together. So as Jalen mentioned, uh, we are right in the middle of a sort of yearly rhythm that we have here at the old Jacob's Well, uh, where we go through our vision and core identities at the beginning of every calendar year. This also sits right in the middle of our ministry year, which kind of goes with the school year. So there's a lot of reasons why we feel like this is a good time to work back through our foundational commitments as a community, the kinds of things that we aspire to live into, that we really feel like God placed on our church uh, sort of from the beginning of the founding of the church. These were the things that we felt like were really important. I realize for some of you who pay attention to this, which is probably like 5% of you, um, and that's not an insult, it's just like, um, it is what it is, is like last week we talked about the vision of our church, which is breaking barriers to encounter Jesus together. Today we call Vision Sunday, <laughs> which is a little confusing. Why did we talk about vision last week? Um, and that's just because Vision Sunday is kind of the day when we do a little bit of a uh, sort of where, where are we so far this year and where are we headed? So we always match it with members meeting. It's our, it's our halftime readjustments if things are needed, which my goodness, speaking of wildcard weekend, how about those adjustments that the Jaguars made at halftime, you know? Oh, if we could be so strategic. Um, <laughs> And come out the way that they did. But, uh, but yeah, this is sort of halftime for us as we just say, what, what were our plans heading into this year? How has that gone and, and where are we headed moving forward? And so that's, 
That's what Vision Sunday means. Today, though, we begin our journey over the next five weeks through these things that we call our core identities. These are, these are the values of our church. Maybe you've been in other spaces where companies, organizations talk about values, talk about what we want to be about. I've come to think of values, or at least this is the way that's most helpful to me to think about values, core identities, is as the, the non-negotiable hows of our community, the non-negotiable hows, that there are things that we could do to accomplish our vision, to be known as a church that breaks barriers to encounter Jesus, but there, there are also things that we want to have as, as kind of guardrails to say, th- these, are, these are the things we just won't compromise on. These are the non-negotiable house. These are the things that are going to set the culture of our church. And the first one that we come to, and now these are up, so I don't look insane turning around to a bunch of wreaths, um, uh, are these icons that are up here. It's, it's the five icons that are up here are our core identities. And the first one is that cross in the middle of a crown of thorns. And this one is gospel-centered, gospel-centered. And so that's what I'm going to talk about a little bit today and then uh, finish. Today is like totally different than a normal Sunday, by the way. If this is like your first Sunday at Jacobswell, you've come on an interesting day. Uh, In that, what we normally do during the time of teaching is go through one passage of the scriptures bit by bit. Um, We believe deeply in that kind of teaching. It's what we do most of the time. Today, we're going to fly at kind of 35,000 feet in terms of uh, our engagement with scripture. And then also, because it's Vision Sunday, we're going to talk about some things very specific to our community that are, that are going on and, um, and just give you an opportunity to respond to it. So it's a little bit of a different Sunday if you're like, is this what they do every week? Um, Tis not. Uh, but welcome. And so uh, gospel-centered. Here's, 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 I think, the best way to think of gospel-centered. If I gave you, <laughs> if you were standing in the middle of a field and I gave you a ball, and I said, score, you would probably have a series of questions. Your question should be, what game are we playing? How do you score in that game? Am I playing alone or with a team? What are the rules? What can I and can't I do? And so it's not as simple as go, score a point, go win the game. You've actually got to know what game you're playing. Or if I put you on a stage and I said, act, you would also have a series of questions. You'd say, well, what play is this? What role am I in the play? Are there going to be other people on stage with me? And maybe even like, what part of the play are we in? Which page should I turn to? I... Recently, uh, over Christmas, my sister was in town. My sister has two girls, and they're a little bit older than our boys. They're high school age. And I was talking to, uh, to the one, the one night, and we we're having the conversation, probably many of you have had, with teenagers in these days, which is, um, why, do, why do we as Christians, why do we got to do all this stuff? Like, why do we got to do all this stuff? And why do we say no to certain things that the world says yes to, and we say yes to the things that the world says no to? And like sometimes being a Christian just 
it just doesn't make sense because it feels like all the stuff that I have to do, it feels like it can be the exact opposite of what all of my friends around me are doing. And I said to that sweet girl, I was like, amen, girl. <laughs> um, and what I said to her, though, ultimately, as I put my uncle pastor hat on, um, is I said, what you need to remember, and she was talking specifically about the Bible. And she said, man, I read the Bible, and one, I don't get much out of it. And two, the stuff, the, the do this, don't do that, it just feels like, why should I listen to this? This was written thousands of years ago. And I said to her, maybe this will help. I'd encourage you not to think of the Bible as a rule book. I'd encourage you to think of the Bible instead as God's narration of the true story of the world. That you're reading the story of humanity from God's perspective. You're reading the story of creation from the creator's perspective. And the more you understand that story, the more the, the stuff, the do this, don't do that, will actually make sense. Because the what that you're called to do only makes sense if there's a why behind it. Right? The what's of life only really make sense when you consider how, how, how compelling are, are the whys for those things, right? Like this is what every little kid wants to know. Don't eat ice cream. Why, right? Go to bed early. Why, right? And at some point, we actually owe our children a compelling why behind what we're asking them to do. And so much like being placed in a field and handed a ball and being told to score, much like being put on a stage and being told to act, life can sometimes feel like we've been put in this place and told, live! And that should compel us to ask a series of questions. And so often, what Christianity becomes is a bunch of what's, and we forget the why. It becomes a bunch of score. Don't do this. You're breaking a rule. No, that's the right way to do it. No, that's the wrong way to do it. And we're just being screened a bunch of what, and we never step back and consider why. Uh, very, very um, significant, influential philosopher. You've maybe never even heard this person's name, but he's been massively influential over the last hundred years. And he's a Christian philosopher. His name's Alistair McIntyre. He starts one of his great works, um, sort of this, this very uh, significant work in particularly religious philosophy, written, as you see there, um, back in 1981, with this question. He says, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part? And so as I told my niece, I said to her, Christianity's what's can look very um, difficult and scary, but the why 
is unbelievably beautiful and compelling and wonderful and rich and deep. He said, a lot of your friends have a what, how they want to live. Free, freedom, be you, express yourself, do what you want to do, right? The what of our moment. I said, and it looks compelling, and it looks really beautiful, and it looks simpler, and sometimes it, it masks itself as, well, isn't that what love is, or whatever, stand in. I said, but if you look at the actual why, it becomes unbelievably scary and difficult. And I said, and one of the things that you, have a Christian, you as a Christian have is you have the luxury of having a why behind your what. And I said, what a lot of your friends are going to figure out the older they get. And this is why I worked on a college campus for eight years. And this is why college is often an environment where these questions are being asked. And suddenly you realize that the why behind all the what's that you've been told your whole life is, is really scary. Oh, there is no why. You're just the result of time plus matter plus chance smashed together in a meaningless, creatorless universe. And now, in a survival of the fittest, you, are, you have one life and one life only. Therefore, live it to the full. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you can die. That's the why. You know what I saw on a college campus, even a highly intellectual college campus, is a lot of students go, that's terrifying. Is there an alternative? And Christianity comes in to that moment and says, in place of that very scary, very empty, why? There's good news. There's good news. That's actually what this word gospel means. The word gospel is a word handed down to us from various languages, one to another from the scriptures all the way down to now, that at its core simply means good news. This is the good news on which our community is centered. This is the good news that makes sense of all of the what's that we do as a church makes sense because of this why. Right? Gospel-centered, how I want you to think of that is this, is this is the baseline why of everything we do. Everything we do as a church should only make sense because it's grounded, rooted, is, is, is the, the soil of it, if you will, is the gospel, the good news of the scriptures. So here's even a visual that uh, we introduced last year that I know a lot of you are like, that's a really helpful, especially those of you who've been around familiar with these core identities, is that these are our other core identities, thoughtfully engaged, life and multi-ethnic community, seeking justice and mercy, joy and generosity and mission. We'll go through these over the next uh, month. But gospel-centered is the one from which all of the rest flow, is, is the way that I would have you think through this or conceptualize this in your mind. So today, if you would allow me, in just a few <laughs> minutes, I am going to try and sort of give you a 35,000-foot view of that good news. Because that good news um, is not just... One thing, it's, it's a story, it's a narrative, it's the answer to when the actor is, and this is even what I, I told my niece, and maybe this will be helpful to you, is there's, there's one scholar who, a biblical scholar, who talks about it like this, um, I'll simplify even the analogy, is it's almost like the scriptures give us act one 
of the story of humanity, of what God is doing with the world, of what the author of the story is doing. It gives us that act one. And then it skips ahead, and it also gives us how the play is going to end. It gives us act three, if you will. It says this is where it's all headed. And now you and I live in act two. Now here's the thing about living in act two. Living in act two faithfully, when we're told live, right? Act, play, go score, right? When we're told that, we now have the answers to the essential questions we have, which is, well, well what story am I living in? And we also have the answer to, and, and where is this headed? And so us faithfully playing our role now means living in light of what's gone ahead, ahead of us, the story that has gone ahead of us, and living toward what we know is out ahead of us. That's what faithfulness means. It means we have a story within which to enter and to say, my life and my role makes sense because I actually have a why. And so within that, um, let me just sort of, again, 35,000 feet, we've treated this story much more deeply in discipleship courses and other, uh, even last year I gave a, a much longer articulation of this on Gospel-Centered Sunday. But let's just work through a couple of these slides here. So the, this good news, this God's narration of the story of humanity starts with creation. And it actually starts before creation because we're told everything doesn't start at creation. In fact, God, the creator, uh, comes before creation. And we're told that even before creation, God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so perfectly in union with each other, so perfectly in love with one another that the only way to articulate who God is is to say that God is one, which is mind-blowing. And welcome to Jacob's Well, um, but that's where we start, okay, is with, a, is with a triune God, three persons in this perfect, perfect loving relationship, in this sort of dance of loving union. And out of that, God creates. Out of that perfect love, out of the center of that self-giving perfection, God creates the world. You see, God doesn't create the world because he needed the world. God, God exists apart from creation. He's not dependent on us to be God. Instead, he creates as an act of love, as an act of, of overflow of who he is. And he creates creation. We have this beautiful scene in, in Genesis 1 where he's speaking things into creation. The spirit is present there. We find out that the word, the, the very word spoken by God, that that's the activity of the son that we meet in John's gospel. Come to us uh, uh, for the rest of the winter and spring. We'll be working through John's gospel where Jesus is called the word of God. And so God creates all things. He originates all things. He's the source of all things. And then he makes humanity with a very special role within that creation. This is where the answer to, well, well, who am I, begins to be answered for us. You see, humanity was made in the image of God. As you've heard us say, if you've been around for any amount of time, the image of God is not just about sort of who we are, 
which is we are like God in certain senses that none, none of the rest of creation is. We are reasoning beings. We are capable of self-giving love, all of these things. But really what image of God, especially in the time that this was written, would have articulated, is, is what we're about, what we're to do. It's, it's a role, it's a function in creation. And that function would be to represent God to the world, to, to be and to do who God would be and what God would do if he were physically present in creation. That's what an image did back in those times. If I was a ruling king and I went and, and I conquered some colony or whatever, I would send someone or I would build something that would represent me in that place. We have stories of this in the scriptures like uh, Nebuchadnezzar's tower or, or when, when various kings would, would conquer Israel, they would, they would send normally a son of theirs to go and, and rule uh, as a representative of them. Those things, that person who was sent or that thing that was built, were both called images of the sovereign, images of the king. Creation is built, and God sets an image there that represents his rule. We're to be who God would be and do what God would do if he were physically present in creation. That's what it means to be human. (laughs) Which, by the way is the compelling why behind so much of what Western civilization is built on. Do you know that? This is one of the rumblings that's going on in culture right now, is we all want to talk about human rights and the dignity of human life, but there's no compelling why behind that if we're just dust. If we're just survival of the fittest, we happen to win out in the biological game of the universe. But if we are uniquely placed in this world to be and to do what God would be and what God would do, if we have been given this distinct, beautiful, deep role by the creator of the universe, then the dignity of all people suddenly makes deep and profound sense, right? That's a uniquely, that's a distinctly Christian what? Because it's founded in a uniquely, distinctly Christian why? See how this stuff works? It's not just about being a Bible nerd. It's about understanding that there's a why behind what we believe and do as Christians. Of course, the Christian story continues, and this goes horribly wrong. This is classically known as the fall. You see, humanity decides, as we all do in turn, our first parents going first and then passing this along to every generation, every people group, every empire, is that we say, I don't want to represent God. I want to be God. I don't want to rule under, in submission to God. I want to rule and be the one submitted to. I don't want to play by God's definition of right and wrong. I think I know what's best for me. And whether it's a two-year-old that you've been around or it's your own heart that you've been around your whole life, this is an all-too-familiar human condition is that we tend to rebel against God's authority and we tend to distrust his definition of right and wrong. 
And so this is what humanity does. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, turn against God, disobey God, distrust his provision in the garden, are tempted by the voice of the evil one. You see, there is evil in the story pushing against God's good purposes. We listen to that voice that says, did God really say, would God really want to withhold this from you? You see, every single, again, this is not just about being biblically knowledgeable or whatever. This is every human heart, right? Every single sin, every single disappointment, every single way that you and I have ever messed up, whether small or big, begins with, yeah, but I think this is going to be good for me. Or, why is God withholding from me? I think God maybe just doesn't want me happy, but I want me happy. But God says no to this, but I think this is going to be okay. The power, the explanatory power of this story, of how this is handed down generation to generation. See, this is sin, which sin is not just the individual bad stuff that we each have done. It's a power. It's the air we breathe. It's the environment that we have created as humanity because of our rebellion and distrust against God. This is what the world has become. There is an instinct that we all share that sometimes is really hard to name, but it sounds something like this is not the way it's supposed to be. You go through some kind of hardship. You experience betrayal. You experience profound loss. You experience death in your life. And I don't care who you are. I don't care how brazen you are. I don't care how committed you are to the story that we're just dust and to dust we return. When these things happen, something rises in the human heart that says, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And the Christian story comes in and says, yeah, it's not. It's not. Instead, it's the result of something foreign to God's good purposes in the world. You see, all of those things, sin and death and betrayal, and all of these things are a result of this original act of distrust and rebellion that all of us are complicit in. And that's why the world's not the way that it's supposed to be. It's not what we so often try and do as a culture, which is, it's them. <laughs> it's them. If we could just eliminate them, those sorts of people, people who believe that kind of stuff, people who do that kind of stuff, it's them, right? Christianity comes in and says, yeah, of course it's them. It's also them. It's also them. But most of all, it's me, <laughs> right? Because this is our common shared state is that we tend, in the words of the Apostle Paul, we tend to somehow, some way, end up doing precisely the things we've sworn off. And precisely the things that we know would make us better people, we know would lead to less harm in our lives, somehow those are the things we struggle to do, right? The bad stuff comes easy, the good stuff comes hard. That's this. <laughs> There's a why behind that. And again, it's, it's not external in the world. It's not that group of people. It's, it's the human heart that is in need of deep repair. Every human heart. This is the story of the gospel. 
course, into that very, very bad news, we have the entry of good news in what I'd call pursuit and promise. You see, just after the beginnings of sin, of distrust, of rebellion, of all the results of that, things kind of, things in, in Genesis uh, 2 to 11 just sort of go downward, downward, downward until they hit this absolute bottom low. And it is precisely at that bottom low. And I don't think it's a mistake that it's at that bottom low. This is the story of the Tower of Babel for those familiar. God actually suddenly, out of nowhere, without explanation, re-enters the story. And he calls a single man, Abraham, and he says, through you, I'm going to make right everything that's gone wrong in the human story. It is a stunning, unexpected, right? We expect it because those who have been around the scriptures, those who have been around church, you kind of expect it. You're reading through Genesis, and you're like, oh, this is the part where he, um, you kind of get through the bad stuff, and you're like, ooh, there's a lot of weird stuff. Uh, in those early chapters of Genesis, humanity's messed up, but I know it's coming. There's nothing to prepare us for it. God's mercy and God's grace and God's initiating pursuit of humanity is always the most surprising part of this story because it always pops out of nowhere because we would expect it to come when humanity has finally cleaned itself up, when humanity is finally on the upswing. God comes and says, finally you get it. I will now partner with you in your recuperation. I will now partner with you in recovering what's been lost in the story. No, 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 no. That's not how God does it. God actually comes at the low point and says, I think that you finally realize that you are so hopeless apart from me that I'm the only thing that could possibly meet you in this place. Then he steps in. And so it's his initiation, his pursuit. And in that pursuit, he says to Abraham, through you, I will create a nation. And through that nation and through my dealings with that nation, I will ultimately bring the rescue plan that I have for humanity to bear. And that nation becomes the nation of Israel. And this becomes the story of God through the Old Testament, having dealings with the single people. And one of the points of the Old Testament is, is that there's nothing exceptionally bad about God's people in the Old Testament. In fact, I think the point is, even with direct access to God, even with relationship and chosenness before God, even those people can't find their way back to God. Even those people again and again rebel against him. And so these promises are made that something will be done. And, and increasingly, those promises center in on the actual problem itself, which is the human heart. Not them, not them, not them, but the human heart itself. And it says God will do something so spectacular that he will actually deal with the human heart. And so the next chapter comes in this story, and this is the chapter where God actually enters the story, where the word becomes flesh and walks among us, where God puts on human flesh, where God, the author of the story, walks on stage and becomes the hero of the story and doesn't become the hero through valor, through defeating others, at least not in the way that we would expect. But he comes and put his very self on line. As we were just singing before in divine exchange, Jesus, he took my place in divine exchange. Right? He put himself 
where we belong. He put himself at the very center of human rebellion and distrust. He took all of that weight upon himself, all of the penalty, all of God's righteous wrath against sin goes on Jesus as our sinless substitute. He stands in the way, takes it upon himself, dies, like really dies, not appears to die, not wink, wink, God, no big deal here, actually is separated from the Father experiences that alienation that's at the heart of what we experience, cries out what every human heart at the end of the day is ultimately crying out, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where is God in any of this? Jesus experiences that. And yet, because he alone is the human being who didn't deserve that penalty, God is righteous in raising him up. You see, all of that bad stuff stays in death, is killed with Jesus. In Jesus, we have the death of death forever. And all of it goes into the ground with him, and yet he rises victorious over it. And he rises victorious now so that what he has done can be applied to our lives by the Holy Spirit of God, which actually goes inside of us, which actually dwells within us, as crazy as that sounds, right? But that's good news. Because you and I both know external change, stuff that's just working from the outside in, it never quite takes. We need something from the inside out. This is what Jesus came to do. He sends his spirit to actually begin to transform us from the inside out. And we watch this in the life of his earliest followers who go from profound cowards to these bold witnesses of what Jesus has done. And they don't become perfect people. They don't get superpowers. They're not flying around perfect and pure. They're messed up like the rest of us. They're imperfect all the way until the end. But we see this progressive over time and fits and starts change. that says something else is going on among those people. Something else is working within them to change them such that the world around them that has all the power and the riches and, and, and all that this world promises says, yeah, but they have something we don't have access to. And 2,000 years later, a third of the planet bows the knee weekly <laughs> to a Jewish carpenter who lived 2,000 years ago. Think of how extraordinary that is. Because we bear witness to the fact that, yeah, that spirit of God is still active today. You see, this is the part that we're living in. After Jesus' death and resurrection, the giving of the spirit to change us, there's a certain kind of faithfulness that that requires of us. You see, the, as it says there, the image of God is being restored in us. This is New Testament language for what's happening. You see, God is once again calling a people to be and to do who he would be and what he would do if he were physically present in this world. He's saying, you are now my body in this world. You are now my hands and feet, quite literally, in the world. You embody what I'm about in this world. Go and participate in that rescue. Go and participate in the redemption that I am bringing about in the world. This is where we're living. This makes sense of the what. This is why we got to do all this stuff, right? This is why we got to be thoughtfully engaged. We can't just bury our heads in the sand. This is why we live life in multi-ethnic community because that's one of the beautiful images. That's one of the beautiful signs that God has given us that something different happens in this community as opposed to what's happened out there. Instead of pointing fingers at each other, we embrace one another. 
We break barriers to encounter Jesus. Together is what we do. We seek justice and mercy because that's God's action in the world is where there has been injustice. The people of God participate and bring the justice of God into this world. Joy and generosity and mission. We're joyful in this. We finally have a why behind the what of our lives. And so let us give ourselves generously to the mission of God in this world. See how gospel-centered flows into everything else we do? It's the non-negotiable why behind it, all of the what. What's beautiful is that we have the end of this story. There's one last chapter where Jesus will come again, where redemption will be applied to the four corners of the universe. No more crying, no more pain, no death, no mourning anymore. And it says, he himself will, will wipe every tear from every eye. The words of, of Lord of the Rings, he, he will make all the sad things come untrue. There will be something so spectacular at the end that every pain, every grief, every wound that we have endured, God will somehow heal and make right in the end. And scriptures are, are straining for language to even help us wrap our minds around how spectacular that, that last chapter will be. If you've somehow gotten the impression that Christians believe that when we die, we all put on togas and go sit on a cloud and play harps, um, that is the most ridiculous, uh, misguided, misshapen understanding of Christian hope. You see, Christian hope is a world renewed, this world renewed. Everything that screams in you, this ought not be. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Christ will one day make it exactly the way that it, will supposed, it, it is supposed to be, including yourself, including your very being, including your desires. He'll make it all right. And this is what we dwell in eternity with, in perfect, loving, joyful relationship with him. This is where we're headed this is the foundation of Christian hope. You see, we know the end of the play. We are not striving for something. We're simply moving towards something that's already been guaranteed in Jesus. You see, what we're told is that the resurrection is not like this bizarre miracle in the middle of human history. Instead, it's the first glimpse of what will happen to all of us who follow Jesus and all of creation one day. It, it's the coming attractions. It's the trailer. It's the, yeah, yeah you, you get a little bit of a hint. You, you get the first, uh, another biblical language, you get a foretaste, like the appetizer of the entree of Christian hope in the resurrection of Jesus will one day be applied to the four corners of creation, the four corners of your heart and my heart. This is what we're moving towards. Does that sound like good news? <laughs> Sounds like good news to me. Here's a simple uh, sort of pictograph for you. Picture I showed this last year, right? Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. There's different names that these things go by. Sometimes I feel like this leaves out the whole Old Testament, but that's a quibble for another day. Um, here's what I do like about this. Because sometimes, go to the next slide, Pam. Sometimes what we can do 
is that we can tell the good news as just humanity has sinned terribly and Jesus has come to save you, which is 100% true. It's just not the full story, but what that part of it emphasizes is our individual salvation, our individual guilt before God um, is, is at the eternal life that, that we get, that there is a reward beyond this, that we'll forever be with Jesus. It emphasizes salvation by grace. Other people, um, their, their sort of instincts go toward um, God created the world perfectly and beautifully, and now it's not the way that it's supposed to be, and we've got to do something about it. And that is also 100% true. <laughs> it's just not quite the complete story. But that wonderfully emphasizes there's a, there's a corporate responsibility, there's a corporate salvation that's going on here, that God is saving a people unto himself over the face of the earth. It emphasizes the kingdom of God, that God's kingdom brings a different reality into the world and emphasizes probably one of my favorite aspects of the good news is this idea of new creation, that God is, is actually restoring not just individual people, right? Like this, this is kind of the, the idea that I got growing up in church is like the world is just kind of like this weird laboratory and we're all sent down like guinea pigs and then the good little guinea pigs that like choose the Jesus cheese or something like get plucked out and put in like happy mouse land or guinea pig land or whatever, right? Um, and I was always like, that's just a weird why, right? Like that's not the Christian story either. It's that God cares deeply about the world that he created and that our purpose within this world is not just to choose rightly, it's to participate with him in the bringing of new creation, in the bringing of his kingdom into the world, of changing this place, right? Not a laboratory. This, this is the eternal resting place of God. You realize that? Like the Christian hope is not we go up to heaven. It's actually heaven comes down to earth. God comes to us. We don't fly up to him. That's what the scriptures say. And so, so far from a laboratory, this is it, y'all. Like this, this, is, this is the world. We want to be a church that holds those two things together. Not an either or but a both end. We want to emphasize the, the righteousness and the holiness of God and the, the individual responsibility that we all bear before God for our sin and the need for individual repentance. We also want to emphasize the, the real call of God to then participate with him in undoing injustice and in bringing the kingdom of God and declaring that and being a people, not just individuals saved with our golden tickets, ready to fly away one day, but actually participating with the people of God, part of the corporate mission of God in this world. We want to hold these two things together. Very appropriate time to quote our archbishop, as Jalen calls him. Uh, Tim Keller is my favorite sort of one-sentence summary of the gospel. is a good one to take a picture of think about later. This is Keller's definition of the gospel. Through the person and work of Jesus Christ, God fully accomplishes salvation for us, rescuing us from judgment for sin into fellowship with him. That's sort of the left side, right, of the slide we were just looking at. Listen to this, though. And then restores the creation in which we can enjoy our new life together with him forever. It's a, it's a really helpful articulation of, of the gospel. I'll just give you one idea just to land this really quickly before we go through all the practical stuff to finish out today. What does this mean about us? What's our role? I think my, my favorite sort of um, image that, that I've been thinking a lot about lately is this one. Pam, go to the next slide. Um, this, is, this is the Apostle Paul reflecting on <clears throat> the gospel. This is one of the famous places where he's articulating this good news. And then he, he sort of lands it on us. What, do, what does this mean for us? And this is what he says. He says, therefore, 
If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if, if you've put your faith in Jesus, you've been, you've been brought into him. This is one of the, like, the funky but really profound ways the New Testament talks about what it means to be a Christian is you're in Christ. You've been brought into a new reality. It's like you're, you're breathing new air. It's like you've been brought into a new family. It's like you have, a, you have a new fundamental identity. You're in Christ. And if anyone has that as their reality, behold, it literally says, translation says he is a new creation. Really what it says is, behold, new creation. If anyone is in Christ, behold, new creation. In other words, if that's true of you, if you've been brought into Jesus, you are a sign of new creation. You are, a, you are an aspect of God's new creative work in the world. You, you, you've been brought into that reality. You were part of old creation. Now behold, new creation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Love this image. We're ambassadors. What does an ambassador do? An ambassador goes and lives in a foreign country, but represents the interests of their home country in that foreign country, finding ways for the interests of the country they're living in and their home country to, to, to meet, looking for mutually beneficial ways for those two countries to interact. And the ambassador bears the responsibility of representing that home country, being deeply immersed in the life of where they're living, and finding ways for the interests of those to be brought together. Paul says, this is what you are. Behold, new creation. Sort of like if I were to go to France or whatever, it'd be like, behold, I'm America, right? Like, behold, I'm an American, right? Like, that's where my citizenship actually is, right? But if I were an ambassador there, what would I do? I would live in France. I'd be deeply immersed in the life of France. I'd probably have to figure out the language, right? Like, I'm thinking of Paul and Abby Helms, who are literally missionaries in France. They've learned the language. They've deeply immersed themselves. In the, but they're representing, at base, a much deeper identity. In their case, not America, but this, they represent Christ. And they're living in that place in order to find ways for Christ's interests and the interests of others to come together, right? But who's ultimate loyalty to? Ultimate loyalty has to be to your home country, right? A horrible ambassador goes, let me tell you some secrets about my home country. You know how you can really mess them over, right? Like, that's not what an ambassador does, right? Like, an ambassador is primarily there with loyalty and primary allegiance to their home country. This is a beautiful image of what it means to be a Christian. Is we live in this world in a foreign place where we do stick out, where it feels like our what's and how we do things in our culture can feel just totally different can feel like the literal opposite of my middle school friends, right? And we're called, though, to be immersed there, not to run from it, not to say, oh, sorry, I, 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 I'm going to put up walls around that, but to be immersed in that and to learn it, but to be primarily loyal to the one who sent us, who is Christ, and then to bring what he offers, to bring his interest with us, into the boardrooms and Zoom calls and classrooms 
And wherever we are sent to maintain our primary allegiance to Christ, but to represent him. And what does it mean to represent him? It's what Paul says in this text. Here it is, our primary message. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. What is God's appeal? We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's our message. That's not just what our words are meant to point towards. It's what our lives are meant to point towards. You see, because people, people aren't just listening to our words, they're listening to our lives. And our lives need to communicate, be reconciled to God. Do you know that that means that the pressure isn't for you to always be perfect? The pressure is for you to be real and for you to be someone who's been sent from a home country where entry was, I'm not perfect, I don't live up to things all the time, I need a savior, and then you're sent out and we think that now our appeal is, come be perfect like me. No, 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 no. We go out and our message is, come find what I've found because I'm imperfect like you and I mess up like you and I feel the need for my heart to be changed like you and I think that's starting in a little bit of a way but it can only start if you're reconciled to God, right? This isn't, I think sometimes we hear something like ambassador, I was talking about this with my niece so if you're out there, Logan, um, I got you girl, is um, right? this idea of witness that we put on kids. Uh, guard your witness, guard your witness. And what we mean by that is be morally perfect at least superficially so that everybody else wants Jesus, right? Be really careful with that. I know what you're trying to say, and if your parents say it to you, listen to your parents. Um, but, but there's a nuance there that says your witness isn't just superficial moral perfection. Your witness should be, hey, authenticity, and hey, when I mess up, I actually have somewhere to go. I have someone who can forgive me. I have a hope that I am being changed, and I have a resource within me that's changing me, and so I actually have hope beyond my worst mistakes, right? That's a witness, you go and maintain that witness, and suddenly, middle schoolers, high schoolers, 40-year-olds, 70-year-olds will say, why do you have that hope? Why do you have that hope? That's our role. That's what it means to live in Act 2. <sighs> now we make the hard left turn that I never know how to negotiate to say, Let's work through our strategic priorities and see where we're going. Um, but with some of that in mind, right, this is, this, is where, this is where we've been this year, is my challenge to you was this idea of begin again. This idea we've been through a whole lot as a church, individually, corporately, COVID, all the things, all the blah, 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 right, like over the last couple of years, and we needed to figure out how do we look each other in the eye and say, hey... I'm ready, I'm ready to begin again. Will you begin again with me? Even if there's hurt, even if there's uncertainty, even if it feels like, really, we're going to take a step forward? I don't feel as comfortable. I don't feel as secure. I look around this church. I don't even recognize people. I've been here for 10 years, and I don't recognize people. Some of you are like, I just got here yesterday, and I don't recognize people. It's like, yeah, we're all there, so how do we step into that? And so some of the things that we did this year is we created these things called care groups. How many of you are in a care group? Look at that. So that's working. No, I'm kidding. Um, we'll talk about it a little bit more. Go, go to the next slide, Pam. Here's, here's the idea of what we're trying to do, right? Like, ideally, I'll just say it. Ideally, you're in some group that does all these things together. We tried this here at Jacob's Well. Your community and your care and you're being discipled and you do service in the local community together and you're meeting your non-Christian friends and all that stuff. Look, 
That didn't work for a number of reasons, mostly because we live in Jersey, and we just do life really weird. Do you know that in New Jersey? It's like we commute to our friends, and we don't, you know, walk around the corner to the coffee shop. We'll go like three Starbucks away because we like their latte or whatever, right? Like we do life weird, which made the whole idea of doing this geographically really hard. So instead we said, what if we created different different places where all of these really necessary things that need to happen in the church are happening and tried to create some overlap between those so that maybe who's sitting at your discipleship table ends up in your care group or maybe you end up doing a service a local service project um, with someone that you met over community meal so we're trying to create these spaces and I'll tell you I was just with the elders uh, last week we're doing some of this review and and we're starting to see some of that happen we're starting to see this really beautiful overlap happening where it's like, yeah, our kids are in well teens together and we happen to be doing discipleship course together, you know, this semester. And that's been like a nice connection point. And so we're trying to create, we're calling this Jacob's Well 3.0. We're trying to create these overlaps by creating these different spheres where these things are happening. Go to the next slide. Um... There's advantages and disadvantages to these two models, right? The advantage on the left side, those of you who are around long enough, which is not many of you at this point, but when we did missional communities, right, it's an integrated model. There's a longevity of relationships. It does require a lot of leaders because there can be a lot of leader turnover. Um, and then really the big thing, transience becomes an obstacle. You ever had a really good friend in New Jersey and they move? Anybody? Anybody? Is that a thing? Um, right? Um, whereas this one, we feel like we've been able to create a ton of shared leadership, um, like, we were, we were just with a bunch of our leaders the other night, and we, we have about 25, 30 people, like, carrying, like, very significant weight in this community, which is extraordinary and amazing in these different spheres. That's a huge advantage of this. Um, the potential for overlap that I was just talking about. And, yeah, there is this, like, lack of relational longevity in any one sphere, but we hope that if you stick around Jacob's Well long enough, um, you'll find yourself immersed in each of these, and, and the relationships um, begin to form through that. So we're just being honest that this isn't a perfect model, but it's one um, that we really feel like is, is starting to work, which is cool. By care groups, these are really care groups themselves, right? We have discipleship course where we do more sort of in-depth Bible study and more in-depth life-on-life um, -life discipleship kind of stuff. These are really for uh, these things, mutual care, bearing burdens uh, together. It's sort of your tribe within the big tribe of Jacob's Well. They're multi-ethnic, multi-generational to, to stay true to that core identity. Um, and they're relationally organized. We gave you a choice of which one to be in, which is very radical um, here at Jacob's Well. It is. I'm not kidding. Um, we've never given you a choice for much, but we're giving you a choice in your care group um, rather than organizing them geographically. And again, the returns on that have been really encouraging. Here are your uh, care coordinators. The whole idea of these is they're coordinating care. They're not providing all of the direct care. So the language that we came up with is instead of seeing this as two coordinators, you know, Allison and Andy for their however many dozens of people you guys have. I know you guys have a big one. Um, they're not providing direct care for all those people. Instead, it's all 20 of those people providing care for the other 20. And again, we're seeing this happen. The rhythm of your care group probably looks something like, you know, Andy shares and then you know, someone says, hey, can anyone pray for Andy or follow up with Andy or meet with Andy in the next month? Um, if that's appropriate, that's why we're doing it that way. Next slide. Um, we also put an elder in each of these so that there's elder presence in them, which we felt like was important, as well as staff in all of these. So if you're not in a care group, 
and, and you feel like this is going to be a place where you're going to land, um, this is kind of like one of the two big things we do. Okay? We do this and discipleship course. And you'll hear about discipleship course over the next three Sundays. But today would be the day that I would really encourage you, that it, especially if you're new in the last four or five months and haven't gotten connected to one of these care groups, I'm literally going to pause, even though we're coming to the end here, I'm just going to pause and give you a second on jacobswellnj.org. There's a, there's a slide on the rotator on that front page that looks exactly like this. Please, please, please click on that. Look through. It has who the coordinators for each group are. It even has the dates of the next meetings and where those are, um, which might be helpful to you as you choose one of these. If you need help choosing, come see either me or our directors of this whole thing. The people in charge of the whole thing are Jalen up here. Jalen, give a wave. And is Bina in today? Yeah, she's in Wild Kids. Um, so so Jalen would be your person to, to help you get connected to one of these. But I'm gonna just going to stop for 30 seconds so that you can do this if you need to do this and get connected to a care group. Don't worry, we're almost done. All right, last couple things we have here. Um, so strategic priority number one heading into this year was creation of those care groups. Second one was what we called catalyzing evangelism. Underneath this one, you can go to that next slide. Um, this will, will really be an emphasis heading into the spring. This will be one of the, the 200 um, discipleship courses for those of you who are eligible for those 200. Couldn't encourage you more to take that evangelism one. Again, you'll hear about all that over the next couple Sundays. And so we really, this is just not an area that we're strong in as a church, just to be totally honest with you, is um, equipping you to, to be confident in conversations, to know what to say, to know how to even approach non-Christian friends and neighbors and coworkers and things um, in, in these ways to, to be a, an ambassador for Christ. And so this, this we want to take a major step in corporately this year. So we'll be doing that equipping in the spring and then in the summer. We'll be launching something called Alpha that might be familiar to some of you. It's, uh, it's, it's a whole curriculum that is just a really easy entry into spiritual conversations with, with non-believers around you. And so we'll be asking some of you to, to help lead those and create groups around that. Way more on that in the spring. We always knew that this was going to be more of a, of a spring emphasis, but that will be upcoming, so that's kind of big, big emphasis number two. And then the third thing here is clarifying seeking justice and mercy, which we'll talk specifically about this in, in a couple weeks. But for those of you, how many of you participated in Jalen and Rachel's Seeking Justice and Mercy D course in the fall? Cool. Uh, so that's content that we hope to 
to bring more widely to our church. We might even preach through that stuff at some point. So shout out to, to Jalen, who's been leading uh, a lot of our, our clarity around that and a lot of our praxis around that. Also, the ongoing service opportunities is a move toward putting our, putting our hands to the work of justice. And so couldn't be more grateful for Pastor Minoj, who I know is in Well Kids, and his team. Many, many, many of you participating, whether it's in, in Young Lives or Elijah's Promise or a bunch of other stuff that, that our church is now partnered with at, at a much deeper level than we were even six months ago, which is really cool, really exciting for us to be opening the space more frequently. Uh, I think of, of the crew that Catherine Mitch has in here on Wednesday, right? We're starting to see some of what we really wanted this to be, which we called home base for mission. We're starting to see some of that come to fruition as, as we lean into these things a little bit more. And so that's, our, that's, that's kind of the overview of where we are. You'll be hearing a lot more about this. I did want to give, as, as just a, a last thing here, just a next step for, for you, given wherever you're at. If you're brand new to Jacob's Well or still feel like, man, we don't know. We don't know if we're going to land here. We're kind of figuring out who Jacob's Well is. I would really strongly encourage you to come to the Connections Lunch next week. This is after the gathering. You heard Rachel and Jalen talk about this in the announcements. This is a really low-key time to, one, meet some of our other leaders, um, not just me, but meet some of our other leaders, to hear from those leaders about kind of what Jacob's Well is about, and to have any questions that you just haven't found a forum to have answered, to ask those questions. Again, we provide lunch. We would love to have you there next week if you're still kind of trying to figure things out. And so just go to the, the website, and again, there's, there's a slide for that. Just register so that we can plan food for next Sunday. Some of you have been around a little bit, and you've been here for you know, a number of months, maybe even a couple of years post-COVID and all that stuff. And we are a church that does membership. We really believe that membership is uh, you're not going to find chapter and verse in the New Testament on membership. Instead, the church has classically done membership just as a way of kind of saying like, yeah, we're in here and, and we want to be held accountable by this community. We want to have a responsibility to this community and them to us. And so we feel like, especially in Jersey, especially given that transience that I was just talking about, we, we just really feel like membership is an important way of establishing like who is our church. And so we learned this, especially in COVID. When COVID hit, there's immediately this question of like, who, who as elders are we responsible for? And the easy answer to that became, okay, it's our membership. Like that, that's very clarifying, right? Many of you um, attend here somewhat regularly, and, and certainly we feel a responsibility. But there is a point at which we would ask you to raise your hand and say, yes, like we're in we want to be, and membership is not some weirdo thing where you sign your life away to us and you're like never allowed to leave our church or something, right? Like we're not, we're not that bizarre. Um, but it is, it is just another, a deeper level of commitment to, to say, hey, we're, we're here, we're going to be here. And then there's certain expectations that we have of you, that you'll do discipleship course, that you'll do care group, that you'll, you'll actually serve on Sundays and all of those things. So there's a, there's a mutual giving and taking that, that we feel like is just really healthy and has served us well. Um, right now, we have sort of more people on a Sunday here who aren't members than we've ever had in the history of our church. That's not to shame any of you. Um, some of you take your time, do what you got to do, but I would like gently and lovingly just say membership's not like a, a little deal here. It's a pretty big deal here. It's a significant part 
uh, it's a significant aspect of how we do life at Jacob's Well. And so it's not just like a, a nice little add-on. It's not the little upgrade package on your, you know, streaming of Jacob's Well or something. Like, um, it's, it's a really important step for you to consider. So if that's something that feels really scary for whatever reason or you just have questions around, please talk to me or one of the elders, one of the leaders that you see up here about that so that maybe we can dispel some of that or maybe just to help you think through some of that. I know some of you also, can I just name something, are coming from um, difficult situations and, and hard church things have happened over the last couple of years. And so I understand the hesitation there. And so I don't want you to unnecessarily move through maybe a, a little bit of a slower healing process that you're going through or whatever it is. Um, so just to name some of that, but, I, but this is like a little pastoral loving nudge toward, hey, we'd love to see um, more folks jump in. And for those of you who will be around, um, the big thing that we have coming up is our discipleship course, the spring semester of that, which launches February 8th, the next three Sundays will very much be dedicated to telling you what those are going to be, signing you up, getting you registered for those. But, um, but that's what we do. That's, that's our big thing is discipleship course and care group. And so if you're here, that's what here means. Um, and so, uh, so, yeah, would really encourage you to put those dates in your calendars now so that you're ready for the next couple Sundays. And with that... We're done with Vision Sunday. Um, we do come to this table because we're Jesus Church. We're centered on the gospel. He is our non-negotiable why of everything we do. Why do we do care groups? Why do we care about evangelism? Um, why, do, uh, why, do we do, why do we do discipleship, of course, right? Like the why, the baseline why of all that is we believe we're living in a story in which God has come, put himself in our place to rescue us and to actually make us participants in the, the new creative work that he is doing in this world. So we come to this table uh, in repentance, seeking his forgiveness and grace every week. There's gluten-free crackers here. There's bread on the outside, wine and juice that are labeled. You just rip it, uh, or you don't even need to rip it. It's pre-ripped. Um, you dip it, and you take it and go out the sides. This table is for followers of Jesus. Scriptures are clear that if you're not a follower of Jesus, you honor him more by simply considering what you've heard this morning. If you are a follower of Jesus, uh, we would welcome you at this table as we sing our last worship song. So come when you're ready.